Hello, this is Peter Baxter, Editor of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. I'm delighted to introduce this podcast. In it, we'll be discussing the paper, Randomized Controlled Trial of Web-Based Multimodal Therapy for Unilateral Cerebral Palsy to Improve Occupational Performance, authored by Sarah James, Jenny Ziviani, Robert Ware, and Rosalind Boyd. It's in the June 2015 issue of the journal. It's going to be discussed by Dr. Sarah James and Professor Rosalind Boyd, both from the Queensland Cerebral Palsy and Rehabilitation Research Centre, University of Queensland, Brisbane, Australia, uh, who are obviously two of the authors, and by Dr. Dido Green, who is Reader in Rehabilitation at Oxford Brookes University, UK. Please can we start with you, Sarah, to outline the paper and give its background. So this is a paper report on the first large randomised control trial of an interactive computer play program for children and adolescents with unilateral cerebral palsy. We carried out a randomised control trial to investigate the effectiveness of a novel web-based multimodal therapy program compared to standard care for children with unilateral cerebral palsy. We had 102 participants in this study aged 8 to 18 years with mild to moderate unilateral cerebral palsy. And this paper reports on the occupational performance, upper limb function and visual perception outcomes. The overall trial also included physiotherapy, neuropsychology, participation and quality of life measures. The intervention in this study was called Move It to Improve It, or MITI, and it combines upper limb, visual perceptual, cognitive and physical activity training. It was developed at Helene Elsa Centre and in conjunction with the University of Copenhagen in Denmark. MITI is delivered in the home environment and completed for 20 to 30 minutes daily over 20 weeks, giving a maximum potential dose of 40 to 60 hours of therapy. The programs are creative and modified by therapists weekly to provide incremental challenge. There was considerable variation in the amount of MITI that was completed by participants in our study, and we had a mean of 32.4 hours and a large range from 3.7 up to 74.7 hours. As a sub-study to investigate this, we also looked at factors which impacted on engagement to provide us with some insight into this variability. We found overall that the intervention group showed statistically significant improvements in ADL motor and processing skills, occupational performance goal attainment, visual perception, and capacity of the dominant upper limb. The differences between groups, however, did not reach levels of clinical significance. There were no significant differences in biomanual performance and just a trend towards an improvement in the capacity of the impaired upper limb. So overall, we found that MITI offers a means of providing therapy for children to increase therapy dose and supplement face-to-face therapy approaches. Thank you, Sarah, for this um, wonderful insight to your paper and your study. I was most curious with respect to the interest placed in trying to enhance children's engagement in therapy programs and what your thoughts were regarding the benefits of these interactive computer games and the virtual reality systems, such as those that might be bespoke, so specifically targeting individual children's skills, or semi-bespoke, which I felt that the MITI was in that you have a general programs that are adapted to each child, or the virtual reality systems. So my question is whether you felt there was a difference between the bespoke techniques or semi-bespoke techniques and how those might be adapted very easily for children. Yes, that's certainly an interesting point, Dada, and one that we have considered throughout the study. 
And I think there are probably two major considerations when we're looking at different types of virtual reality programs and whether we're using them for specific therapy purposes where we might want bespoke or a semi-bespoke program compared to using virtual reality as a means of engaging in a leisure activity as a form of participation. And I think when we're using virtual reality for specific therapy purposes, there was a scoping review conducted by Danielle Levac and her colleagues, and they investigated what the active ingredients might be that are linked to improved motor outcomes in children with neurological impairments. And some of these properties were things such as opportunities for practice and the increased repetitions, as well as the flexibility to individualise the treatment parameters and feedback about task performance, as well as some other characteristics. And I think these properties are linked more to bespoke or semi-bespoke programs, such as MITI, as you mentioned. I think a different point of view is looking at virtual reality as a means of participation in a leisure activity, where some of the more off-the-shelf games may be more appealing, as the desired properties for these systems are ones that are engaging the children and may allow participation with friends and siblings and the ability to advance through levels and have new games to play. And these off-the-shelf games that have been extensively developed for leisure purposes may be more appealing for these purposes. I think it's important to realise that, too, in the conclusion of our study and in the interpretation, that we highlight that the Mai Tai program, while being multimodal, addressing multiple problems that children with unilateral cerebral palsy might have, it's really not a, a, you know, a one-all treatment. It's really an additional treatment to a specific goal-directed training where you might enhance function. This is going to increase the potential dose of therapy, offer opportunities to, in their own home, increase the amount of practice. But it's because of the multimodal nature, we can enhance other components apart from just motor and processing skills in the visual perceptual training and physical capacity training that it also incorporates. So it's got some good individualisation, some good incrementation, but it's, you know, I think there's quite a lot of variation in virtual reality and bespoke and semi-bespoke games. Yeah, I'm curious, with respect to the discussions you've just raised regarding the engagement in the leisure activity elements of computer games and virtual reality systems that children might spontaneously do playing with their friends, so increasing their participation and getting some secondary benefits to motor and processing skills, and how that might differentially affect the engagement and intensity to which the children are participating if they're more prescriptive with respect to children knowing that this is part of a therapy program. Do you think that might have influenced some of the children's sort of playtime in the systems at all? Well, I guess there's two different points there you make, Dodo. I guess the, the point about engagement, I think that is a very important point. And Sarah might talk a little bit more about the engagement aspects and what she evaluated within her other qualitative component. Do you want to elaborate on that, Sarah? Yeah, I think that was an important point because with our the Mai Tai program, even though the children initially saw it as a fun interactive computer game, it was repetitive, which was one of the key characteristics of the program. But I think that was one of the key points that contributed to the decline in motivation over the 20 weeks and that it was and there weren't new games coming out as the children might have in their off-the-shelf games where they constantly have new games to be playing that keep them engaged. So I think that was one of the factors that was important with the engagement and the participation with the repetitiveness of the Mai Tai program. We wouldn't say that Mai Tai 
led to any translation into enhanced participation in leisure activities. It's really working on capacity, it's working on motor and processing skills, physical capacity, visual perception. So I think it's important to make that distinction with computer games, whether they're a therapy-related interactive computer play or they're more related to enhancing a leisure activity. We wouldn't say that Mai Tai is linked to that second point at all, and we didn't expect that, and we certainly didn't demonstrate that. Okay, that's very interesting. And have you been able to explore some of the off-the-shelf systems such as the Wii Fit or Kinect games? And I understand I haven't yet had the chance to do this, but programs such as Unity Game Engine allow for some adaptation, particularly to the Microsoft Kinect program. Have your team managed to explore that in any way? Um, Sarah mentioned about the LEVAC study, and I think that does a very good summary of the active ingredients and evaluation, that's a very good systematic review of the computer games and off-the-shelf games. And our other colleague, Dr. Louise Mitchell, who did the physical capacity parts of the Mai Tai, also published a review on that. I guess the focus of this work has been a pragmatic randomised control trial on this particular system, which is quite different to a lot of other systems, I think, because of its multimodal component, because of the fact that it can be incremented, individualised, and it incorporates multiple therapists, physios, OTs, and psychologists in the way it's designed to have that multimodal approach. So it's probably very different to most other off-the-shelf systems. In relation to the Connect version, the version that we present here is the original green band version, and the new version does work with Connect, and we're currently analysing that data in a group of children with acquired brain injury. I think it's very similar, and that's the only version of Mai Tai now available. The only challenge can be with Connect. Using Connect equipment is the speed of response and the speed of the data capture, and, and there can be some technical issues with using the Connect versions, which I think are being overcome with the new versions. This particular paper used a green band version, which used just a simple laptop computer with a webcam and green band technology, which means you can move objects on the screen based on wearing green bands on your limbs or head. Oh, very interesting. That leads me to one of the questions I was thinking of in how do we translate the Mai Tai into more regular clinical use. How easy was it for the OTs, physios and psychologists to work together collaboratively and then scale up or scale down the tasks each week? Yes, we found it was quite a smooth process. We had one team, so one occupational therapist, one physiotherapist, and one neuropsychologist. So we generally had one of the therapists as, I guess, the case manager for each child, and then look at how they were going over the week together, and then increment the program based on how they'd gone over the week. So it was quite a smooth process in being able to do this as a multidisciplinary team and design and then modify the programs as a team. And I think the good part about Mai Tai is that it offers a range of different activities and modules and they can be tailored and incremented according to what the child's interested in, but there's different components. There's emphasis of about 40% of them on upper limb and motor processing and another 20% on visual perceptual and another 20% on physical capacity components. So the team could work together in a multimodal way to sort of think, well, what's the best challenge for the child this week? And the system records their performance and number of attempts, so the team could get an idea 
what they might be finding more challenging and, and make sure that each of the activities each week was upgraded to the just right challenge. Oh, very interesting. In the literature and, and clinical and research practice, we're having a lot of debate about the dose and duration of therapies. And you very carefully detailed in your paper elements to which different children participated. In one of the figures, you've sort of shown how much time they've actually spent on that. And in, in your opinion, were there any particular children that found it too difficult or once the novelty had worn off, they, they just weren't engaged? Were there other factors that interfered with their ability to participate over time? Yes, there certainly was a large range we found in the dose. So as I mentioned in the introduction, there range from just three hours up to over 70 hours. So that was something that we then went on to look at. And we found in the sub-study, it was probably about halfway to three-quarters of the way through that the motivation tended to decline a little in the children and the engagement dropped off at that point. So in the first 20 hours were where we think the real benefits were gained and it might have been that that's where the children were paying the most attention to the task in that first 20 hours after the motivation dropped off. They might have been more just going through the processes and this may have not have been as therapeutically effective. So I think in terms of some of the factors that played a role, I think some of the children who were intrinsically driven were most engaged and also where they had a high level of family support as well, we found the children who really became part of their daily routine and the family was really incorporating that as part of the day-to-day activities was where it suited best with the children. So we looked at this in a qualitative study that has just been accepted by physical and occupational therapy in paediatrics called Understanding Engagement in Web-Based Therapy Delivered in the Home Environment, Perspectives of Children and Their Caregivers with Unilateral Cerebral Palsy. So this details all the different factors that contributed to the variation in the engagement. And in, in thinking about that a bit further, would you have any changes in the recommendations for how to advise on how much time each day or each week each child should be engaging in relation to their progress. You mentioned that the greatest gains were within the first 20 hours and then perhaps that they need to do that more intensively and then after that period at least once a week. What are your, your sort of feelings about that? Yeah, I think it will always be a very individual thing for each child. We had some children who were happily engaging for 30 minutes most days and some other parents gave some feedback that 30 minutes was too long every day, so they aimed for 20 minutes every day. So I think it would be on an individual level looking at what works for each child and I don't think it can ever be a a one-size-fits-all approach, but I think that's a nice suggestion, Dido, that you might do an intensive block and then perhaps follow that up with weekly sessions. I think this will be really something to keep looking at in future research. Now that there's a lot more research being done on interactive computer play, I think a way forward will be to look at how it is, it is structured in clinical practice. And probably one of the other things to consider is a, what are the elements of the training that are going to enhance that sort of dose and amount of practice and engagement. And it's probably a bit related to the system in that the system was incremented every week and maybe it should be incremented every three to five days if you're thinking about motor learning principles. We probably got to 20 hours and they used most of the modules so they were very familiar with them so some of the novelty wasn't there after 20 hours so 
if you expanded the number of modules and could continue to increment them and change them contextually according to the child's age and preferences, you could potentially go on and keep maintaining their motivation. But I think it's sort of there's elements of the program and then there's the elements of the child and family factors that Sarah's investigated in her qualitative paper that sort of say, well, that might be the optimal time period of 20 hours and then beyond that it's going to potentially have to look a bit different. Thank you for that sort of consultation, conceptualising how we might extend the dose and duration and adapt it to the individual. The other point that has struck me when reading through different papers and studies on the interactive computer games and virtual reality systems is how there seems to be a limitation to how much that translates to functional skills and daily life for the children. You started to get some nice results with the AMPs and the, the COPM you used to consider how they were satisfied and the goals that they'd set. But what do you think are the main barriers to getting that, all that progress that we're seeing within the system to translate across to the daily life of these children? Yes, I think this is a really important point that we need to consider. And it may be that virtual reality programs such as MITI are really used just to complement task-specific therapy, so used as a basis for learning these underlying skills that we then can go on and work on those specific goal-directed activities in therapy. So I think, yes, use the Canadian Occupational Performance Measure to investigate the attainment in individual goals. And while we found a statistically significant improvement in comparison to the control group, it, re it was close to clinical significance, but we didn't quite get there. So although it's promising, it, this may indicate that maybe if MITI was used in conjunction with goal-specific therapy, there might be greater translation to functional skills. And I think you also have to look at the types of goals and the functional skills that we're looking at. For example, if we were looking at goals of tying shoelaces, for example, something like the MITI program, which doesn't include in-hand manipulation and fine motor skills, we'd have to supplement that with specific fine motor training to work on those goals. So I think it has to have to consider it in terms of the individual goals of the child and incorporating with other forms of therapy. I think we're not under any illusions that a web-based sort of all virtual reality program will necessarily translate to enhanced function in real-world situations. I think we should emphasise again that it's not a standalone treatment, that if you have to upskill in particular sort of manipulation or task, that might I won't do that, but it could increase the amount of practice to sort of generalise that to other motor and processing performance. But it then has to be taken back to the real world concept. So I think any translation into enhanced function in the real world has to be another part of the program. None of the, this program, and I think most virtual reality, will never be a standalone treatment to achieve that. Now, I, I think you're correct on that from what the literature and our own clinical and research experience has been showing. So I'm wondering, therefore, whether your recommendation would be perhaps that after each session or if they're doing half an hour, maybe cut that short to 25 minutes with five or ten minutes on a, a functionally related task that is of importance to the child to sort of make it a combined program to get the immediate benefits to transfer in to the three-dimensional real world. Yes, good, good idea. I think that's very important and a good concept. And I think with most of the studies that have been done in upper limb therapy that's the goal-directed 
training component and translate that directly into a, a goal in the real world that has been quite an important success part. So I think that would also work well here if this was combined with a goal-directed training. Thank you. It sounds that the MITO really does have some potential to augment what clinicians are able to do without increasing the burden of clinical time in that respect and truly offers a more interdisciplinary approach to understanding how we might be able to progress the foundation skills for some of these children. Yeah, and I think the other reason that we were asked by the University of Copenhagen to conduct this study, because actually they approached us to run the definitive randomised control trial, was because in Australia and many parts of the world there's the remote and isolated children where access to experienced therapists may not be easily accessible. So these sorts of web-based programs offer an opportunity for children to have multiple therapists providing a program that could supplement other individualised programs that they might achieve. But we have many children who do not access very much individualised therapy, so it provides another option that could enhance that challenge. On that point, just thinking about the tele-rehab and remote delivery, did you have that many technical glitches where the internet wasn't working or wasn't quick enough or did most of it go quite smoothly? I think we're pretty honest and I think the other paper has shown that what the technical glitches are. The technical glitches were more related to the distance from the remote server being you know, half the world away from the actual program because it's downloaded from Denmark. But in the new developments of my time, I think in many developments of programs, they need to take this into consideration about the downloading and internet speed. And I think with the Connect version and new versions, a lot of these things are being addressed. The actual technical glitches were mostly related to computer programs that anybody would achieve in trying to do anything on the internet. We had to ensure that people had a good level of connectivity, really, before they started the program depending on where they were located, because we have some extremely remote and isolated children. Oh, it's very encouraging that they, they were able to interact and engage with the system, and so very positive way forward to have another tool for our toolbox for both clinical practice and research. I think that it's going to have possibilities in the future for other potential patient groups. We're currently looking at a trial with children with acquired brain injury, and we're looking at a, the same version of my tie with children who obviously have an acquired brain injury, slightly different challenges. It may have translation to other patients, children potentially with delayed motor development or in the autism spectrum potentially, but I think, and even adults following stroke. However, I think in all these situations, the content needs to be kind of considered and updated and tailored directly to that sort of age and interest that children or adults would have because at the moment, it's probably more a primary school kind of child-related task, and it was designed specifically for people with unilateral impairment, so any modifications of the program would then have to be sort of tailored to those different patient groups. Thank you. And, and thinking about further research with the Mai Tai and trying to understand which children may make a better response or a quicker response, do you have any suggestions about where we might be exploring the potential for children with different lesion sizes or different implications for visual spatial processing or areas like that? We're still looking at our data in relation to looking at the response to neuroplasticity and we've undertaken 
studies in the sub-cohort looking at a common functional MRI and diffusion imaging. It's not as simple as that, I think, in saying, well, what might be the most appropriate children. I think this is a really generalised training in that you've got multiple components here that have been trained. So actually saying what component of the training might impact according to different brain laterality or brain lesion size, I don't think we're ever going to get there and we wouldn't have a sufficient sample to do that because I think of the limitations really on your measures of neuroplasticity. I think in all the sort of studies that we've done where we've looked at any of the relationship between neuroscience outcomes and outcomes of the study, the most important thing is for us to show um, functional outcomes on validated tools which have sort of clinical significance and relevance. So I think we've done that in this paper and then we can go on to see what associations there might be with brain structure and function. But we're a little bit off down the track for that yet. It's certainly promising for future studies to try and understand the salient ingredients of these programs. Yes, and um, actually Sarah's looked at that and she's about to present that in America in later this year and she's looked at some of the active ingredients and the best responders. Do you want to talk about that, Sarah, a little bit? Yes, so the paper that's still in the process at the moment, we are looking at the characteristics of the children who had the best response to the MyTai program. So it's still a work in progress at the moment, but that'll be a paper that we'll be looking to keep working on this year. We've now come to the end of our podcast. Many thanks indeed to Dr. Sarah James, Professor Ross Boyd and Dr. Dido Green for a really interesting discussion. Just to remind listeners, the article is Randomized Controlled Trial of Web-Based Multimodal Therapy for Unilateral Cerebral Palsy to Improve Occupational Performance by James et al. in the June 2015 issue of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology.